0: Welcome to the
1: New Books Network.
0: Hi, everybody. Uh, Welcome to New Books in Psychology. My name is Eugenio Duarte. I'm your host, as well as a psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. Today, we are talking about capitalism, but not simply as an economic phenomenon, but as a psychological and emotional one as well. My guest today is Todd McGowan, author of the new book, Capitalism and Desire, The Psychic Cost of Free Markets, published in 2016 by Columbia University Press. Todd McGowan is Associate Professor of Film Studies at the University of Vermont. He is the author of the book, Enjoying What We Don't Have, The Political Project of Psychoanalysis, published in 2013, author of the book, Universality and Identity Politics, published in 2020, and the book. Only a Joke Can Save Us, a Theory of Comedy, published in 2017, among other books. I'd like to welcome him. Hi, Todd. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: I'm happy to have you here. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your background and about the kinds of things that you like to write about?
1: Yeah. So I, I went to Ohio State University, and I got a PhD in English. And when I was there, I got interested in... German idealism, so Hegel, Kant, and psychoanalysis, and so that's how I, you know, that's the the beginning of the road that led me to this book. Uh, and I, I I basically wrote this book because there's been a lot of obviously you know that there's been a lot on psychoanalysis and capitalism and bringing together psychoanalysis and Marxism, like Herbert Marcuse, Theodore Dono, the whole Frankfurt School, but. I felt like that was all th- the way that they thought about capitalism was through the idea of repression. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem right to me. And so part of the the driving motivation behind this book was how, how can I change that critique and and think more about what capitalism does well for us psychically or how it appeals to us psychically rather than how it just damages us psychically. So that was. So it's it's not a book pro capitalist book, but it's about how capitalism works really and uh, psychically, and and not about how it fails. And so I think that's what where I saw uh, a space that people didn't talk about.
0: So before we get into the critiques of capitalism that came before you and and the fresh take that you're offering, I I want to clarify for our listeners one of the basic premises of your book which seems to be as i read it that capitalism is is not just about it's just not it's not just an economic issue it's a psychological issue it's a psychological phenomenon can can you explain how that is so
1: Right. So that's really important to me that it's psychic as much as it is economic or social, right? And so that, that, and the, the idea behind that is that, that capitalism has a fantasy attached to it, that we can, if we accumulate enough or we accumulate the right commodity, then we achieve some perfect satisfaction, perfect enjoyment. And that's, I think that's a, f- a nefarious fantasy, and and so the the way in which that impacts just every like I think if you, th- I I think I say somewhere in the book that, uh, I think this is in the chapter on uh, love and romance that that in every, every commodity you buy is like the idea of the soulmate is written into it. So even if you go to buy like a pack of nails at the hardware store, there's lurking behind that, this idea that I could find some like this, you complete me, this figure of the soulmate in that commodity. And so that's, that's kind of where I was, I was getting that, that, that's a very, that, that's crucial to how I think of capitalism, that idea that it's this psychic, Phantasmatic dimension is just as important as the economic dimension in my mind.
0: But are you saying that 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 allure of the, you know, the, the the box of nails at the hardware store and how it's going to be the perfect box of nails, You're, am I understanding you right as saying that that's an illusion?
1: Right. That it's impossible to have like that. I, I think one of the great ideas of psychoanalysis, this is my, maybe my favorite idea of it is that we're lacking subjects and no matter what we do, we're going to remain lacking subjects. So the idea that we could somehow overcome that is written into every, I think every commodity and yeah, that's an illusion, right? Like there's no, no commodity is going to bring this sense of completion that we anticipate that it's going to bring. And so I think that's really important for how capitalism functions ideologically and psychically and then why it's misleading.
0: You know, if it's all right with you, I want to read some quotes from your book because I want our listeners to to get a sense of what, what a great writer you are. Um, and I'm looking at page two, and I, I want to read a section and and have you talk about it. You say, Most of the attempts to understand how capitalism works have focused on its economic structure or on the social effects that it produces. While important, these approaches necessarily miss the primary source of capitalism's staying power. The resilience of capitalism as an economic or social force derives from its relationship to the psyche and to how subjects relate to their own satisfaction. This is why psychoanalysis is requisite for making sense of capitalism's appeal. Psychoanalysis probes the satisfaction of subjects and tries to understand why this satisfaction takes the form that it does. C- can you explain what you're saying here about the role of satisfaction in your n- understanding of capitalism?
1: Yeah. So it's a it's a double thing, right? So on the one hand, there is something satisfying about just the repetition of, I go to buy the commodity and then I... I find it, there's something that's not quite perfect about it. So then I go to buy another commodity and then there's something not quite perfect. So there's something satisfying just about that repetition itself. But on, and that's, I think that's a real satisfaction in that. But then there's this illusory idea of, I can find this complete satisfaction in a certain commodity that I find, or a certain amount of work that I do. So it can work, it can be on the side of production or on the side of consumption, I think both equally. Uh, and that's illusory. So I think, I think capitalism kind of has both things going for it. It has on the one hand, this real satisfaction of this repetition that, that is a a repetition of a failure. And then a failure that of getting the object but which is nonetheless a, a, there's something satisfying about it and then on the other hand this illusory idea of a perfect satisfaction that is never found but keeps luring us in
0: you know in a moment i want to come back to this issue of you know what is satisfying about the dissatisfaction but you mentioned at the beginning that there have been other critiques of capitalism that focus on on repression in capitalism. Can, can you explain what that cri- that critique is and how yours is different?
1: Yeah. So the, I think the best figure of this is Herbert Marcuse and he, his idea is that capitalism, he thought, okay, there's a certain amount of repression necessary to live in society, but he thought capitalism causes what he called an excess repression or sur- I think he uses the term surplus repression. Uh, which means that it demands more of. We have to sacrifice more of our desire because of the inequalities of capitalism and it, and the, the 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 excesses of capitalism. Uh, and and so that repression means we don't get to fulfill our desire for Marcuse. And so there there was a real link between Marcuse's thought and and the liberation movements of the 1960s, which thought like we can. They they, they linked capitalism to sexual repression, right? And their idea was. If we lift the ca- the repression that happens in capitalism, something happens congruently with sexual repression. And so those two things can go hand in hand. And Marcuse was a leading figure in both of those movements. And and I and I think we can see that, that capitalism works perfectly well with the lifting of sexual repression, right? Like I mean, I think of the last 50 years have shown us anything. They've shown us that 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 sexual repression is not necessary to the functioning of capitalism. In fact, it's kind of a detriment to it, that it works better if there's less sexual repression and more free open sexuality. So that's the that's the key for me. The key that the the so and and my idea is that no, it's not repression so much as this idea that we can fulfill our we can actually get our object. Right. So that's the that's where capitalism misleads us. It's not so much in Oh, we have to repress our desire. It allows us to f- to, to actually. It allows our desires f- to to be to f- be fulfilled, but it it creates this illusion that we can really get this object, this most precious object that we want. Whereas w- structurally we cannot. <laughs> it's like psychically we cannot. Like our psyche is structured, I think, around not around missing the object and that we there's a satisfaction in missing the object i think this is to me again freud's great idea
0: before we leave the the repression hypothesis so that we understand i mean can you can you give an example or explain what does it in what ways does capitalism make us Repress our desires. Is there like a day to day example in, in which that would be the case?
1: Well, I think for Marcusa, I think that they would have that he would have said, and he does does say like you you know you have to go to work from eight to five or even more, rather than I don't know going to the beach and laying out naked and having sex, right? Like there's all these things that you'd rather be doing. I mean, I wouldn't rather be doing that. I'd rather be in a factory working from eight to five. But a lot of people, I think, I mean, for Marcusa, like like sexual activity. I mean and and, and and other frank like for for Theodore Adorno, it would be listening to the opera, right? Like you rather than listening to the opera, you're you're forced to work in this mindless job for 40, 60 hours a week, right? So that would be repression. I think that's the repressive hypo and and it's an, I even said the term repressive hypothesis. So one of the critiques of this idea is from the 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 French writer Michel Foucault who says this, that it's wrong to ever think of repression. And so part of my book is is saying, well, maybe Foucault, I not don't usually agree with him, but maybe he's right about this, that capitalism doesn't involve repression, that there's something else at work. So that idea of repression, there's a lot of criticism of it because of what followed after the 60s. But also it just didn't seem right, I think, to people
0: so let me see if i can synthesize and you let me know if i'm getting it or yeah sure sure.
1: are
0: are you saying you know that that one critique of capitalism has traditionally been it it makes us give up the things that give us joy in life the things that give us pleasure because we got to go to work we have to we have to produce and and so necessarily uh we we give up those joys and you're saying you know that is one critique but the critique you're presenting a different critique that says, no, that that's not the main problem with capitalism. The main problem might be that it structurally is designed so that our desire is actually never, uh, satisfiable.
1: R- well, right. I mean, that's right. I, I, right. So yeah, you've got it. So that, the, the the point would be that we can't, or that it's designed so that we cannot recognize how our desire is satisfied right so it's not that we have to repress our desire it's that we're 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 constantly given this illusion that we could actually get the object right that we could get this thing that will will give us this complete satisfaction that is that we can never get and so that's what, and 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 by holding out that whatever you want to call it, that carrot out in front of us, then we keep striving for that. And we miss how, well, there's something satisfying in just the striving itself. And capitalism doesn't let you ever avow that, right? Like you have to be constantly trying to get more and accumulate more. I mean, that's, I think, the basic. So in that way, it's a kind of traditional critique, right? Like it's a critique of accumulation, the the way this imperative to accumulate, what that does to us psychically and how it misleads us psychically.
0: I think what I took away from it that I, I thought for me was pretty radical or, or revolutionary, it sounds like you're saying, we think we want the object, but what is actually driving us and what gives us this satisfaction is, is, is not getting it. And, you know, we'll, we'll need to unpack this to understand how that's so, but it kind of sounds like you're saying, you know you think you want the bigger house you think you want the nicer car you think that you want the the nice vacation and you and so you strive for those things but that's not that's not actually what where we get our satisfaction we get our satisfaction from the longing for it from the from the falling a bit short of of what we think it's going to deliver us is that what you're saying
1: yeah it's absolutely right Absolutely right. Right. And I think the, to my favorite example of this, I'm a sports fan is the way that how, for how long do you think about your team winning the championship? Like you, you dream about it during the season, like you dream about it, You but when they actually win, it's like, I remember when Tom Brady won a Super Bowl one time, the first thing he was is it's going to be really hard for us to get back here and win it again next year. And I'm like, wait a minute, shouldn't you at least for like five seconds be enjoying the actual thing? But no, it's already about this struggle again to do it one more time, right? And I think the worst thing that can, and I think this is true in our life, like if everything's going perfectly, we invent things that aren't going perfectly, right? Like, and the things that are, the things that are interesting to talk about, like if you, if you're talking about, uh, if, you, if you're talking to a friend and the friend's like, you're like, how's the things going in your relationship? They're like, you know, it's so great. And it's just, we're just getting, a, you don't want to hear like a long litany of how things are going great. You want to hear like, oh, it's a little rocky. Things aren't, you know, we had this fight last, then that's interesting to us. Right. And I think it's the same thing with the object of desire. Like we, 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 or the commodity, like we, we want to strive for the commodity, but actually getting it, Eh, it's like there's something radically dissatisfying about that. So even if the commodity was perfect, it would be imperfect just because it was perfect. So it would be, it would, we would find it wanting just because it was so perfect. We it fit our exactly what we wanted. So I think, actually, I think that's why, planned obsolescence is invented by Apple and all these other people because they know we really want the thing not to quite work. We want it to, and we want it to not stop working too soon and all all of these things, right? Like I think, so I think that that, that the problem with, again, the problem with capitalism is just as you put it so beautifully that that we can't see the way in which our desire really functions and what we really find satisfying.
0: Do you think that this is because this is simply... How human beings are, or do you think that this is how human beings have been trained by capitalism?
1: Oh no, I don't think it. I think I think capitalism. No, no, no. I don't think it. I don't think that that our finding our lack satisfying or our struggle satisfying is is capitalist ideology. In fact, I think the opposite. I think capitalism wants it to wants to believe that we can overcome it, that we can we can really get out of struggle if we get enough or we get the right thing. So I don't think that at all. Like I, I but, but I would say that it's a, it's a, a fact of a, this speaking being right. Like it's, 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 it's like the way in which we are uh, distorted from our natural being by language. That's what, I, that's how I would think of it.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I want to get into that idea, which you refer to in the book as, signification as as i understand it signification is the process by which humans uniquely assign all sorts of excess values or meanings to normal everyday objects that satisfy our basically needs and um you talk about the apple in the book that you know from one point of view from like the animal point of view an apple is nothing more than an apple it satisfies a, a certain need for hunger and if we were simply animals We'd want an apple, we'd eat it, it would satisfy the hunger, then it would be done. And that's what you call the empirical apple. But if I understand it right, you say we humans, through signification, make an apple, an am- empirical apple as you call it, into more than that. It becomes this, this thing that promises much more pleasure, juiciness, you know. Um, sin. And if, <laughs> Sin, yeah. T- t- tell All us right. about right. how signification works. Yeah, yeah, I mean you did
1: a great job of describing it, right? Like that that once the signifiers attached to a thing, then all of a sudden it gain it there's this promise attached to it that there's just something more that we're going to get and never just the empirical object itself. And I think that that's the that's tied to this I and I think that's what capitalism capitalizes on and then is able to present the commodity as oh there's even more attached to this than is present in the thing empirically. Like you know you go to buy a twinkie it's just a twinkie it's like you know, it's just a piece of spongy it's probably made of all terrible things but the, you get there's a certain uh, excess attached to it that even comes with the name twinkie it's kind of a nice name it sounds like it's going to be great uh and and it's creamy and it, all these things that are that are. but but those are things that are beyond it's it's not just the qualities of it empirically it's this stuff it's this excess that's attached to it from The fact that it has a signifier aligned with it. I would just say, though, I'm not sure. I think we're kind of seeing right at this very moment that we're speaking that maybe it's not just humans, right? Like maybe artificial intelligence is also subject to the signifier in the same way, right? Like I'm not, I think one of the errors that we make with artificial intelligence is that we think that it's not going to be lacking. Like we're like we're, we think, oh, it's going to be this perfect thing. Like I think this is the vision of Terminator, or Terminator Two. It's gonna it's gonna be so well. It's gonna be able to take over the world immediately because it's not going to be we're lacking subjects. Artificial intelligence is not going to be lacking at all. But I don't think that's true at all. Like I think the artificial intelligence it's it'll if it if it is subjected to language, which it has to be, it'll it'll itself be a lacking subject insofar as it it can be a subject and not just a put everything I've seen so far. is just putting together other words that already exist. Right. So I'm not sure that that's subjectivity. But I think if it does become whatever, intelligent, subjectified, then it's going to be lacking just like we are. So I don't I don't have the great fear. But I also think it does show that it's not just humans that have a monopoly on this on subjectivity.
0: I want to make sure I understand what you're saying about AI. Are, are are you saying that you don't buy the idea that a artificial intelligence will ever be will ever perfectly satisfy our human desires? Are you saying that AI insofar far as it becomes its own subjectivity, which that's a whole other debate, but, but let's just assume that's true that's like you know, manufactured people. Are you saying that even even the robot will never be fully satisfied? Absolutely.
1: I mean, I think that's the great. okay, this is why I think Blade Runner is so much better than Terminator, because that's the lesson of Blade Runner, right? Like there's a all the all the artificial intelligent, artificially intelligent beings in that film are they're lacking subjects. They're full of desire. They're like, why didn't you make me live longer? Why? I, but I'm in love with this. You know, like there are all these things that we suffer from, they suffer from too. So I think the latter point, I mean, I think obviously the first point is true too. We're constructing this AI hoping it's going to satisfy something in us and it's not going to. I think that absolutely. But I also think it, if it becomes a subject itself, it will be have the same problems that we do. So I don't think we should anticipate, oh, oh I'm, not, I'm just not so scared of it like other people are, because I think it'll just be as screwed up as we are in, 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 in ordinary ways. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible
0: You know, I love the way that you capture this on page 24 of your book. It's so succinct and pithy, right? The object of need becomes an object of desire. Um, you know, and it made me think about how I i actually just got a, a new laptop for work because it, it it was really brought on by necessity. I wasn't even shopping for one. Um, you know, my husband needed, needed a used one. I said, take my, you know, I've had this one forever. Take it. You don't use it as much. I'll buy a new one for work. And it, the minute I realize I have to buy a new laptop, it becomes, you know, it becomes another thing. Oh, what color am I going to get? They've got a blue one now. Oh, but I kind of like the silver one. Is it the newest? Do I want the the, the M two chip or the M one and, and I see, I see what you mean. And I, I gotta ask for you as a person in the world. I mean, even with knowing all that you know and and deconstructing all this as you have, do do you still you know, how do you buy an iPhone? How do you buy a laptop? What are you thinking when you book a vacation?
1: Yeah, that's you know, a great point. I mean, like, it's not a, it, it would be nice. If, that's a, I love your example, by the way. It's so great of of that exact concept. But it's not like you, and this is, a, I think, a psychoanalytic idea. It's not as if because I know something, I'm not I don't fall victim to it myself. Right. Like I just we our car just failed the Vermont state inspection. So the, and we could get it fixed. but It's got rust and, you know, it'd be a lot of money. It's 2004 or something. So it'd be it's a very old. So so then we're like, we need a new car. So all of a sudden it did. Exa- I did exactly the same thing you just talked about. Like, I'm like, OK just a, we'll just get a little thing. And, but, but then I'm like, well, I wanted this nice Honda. It's got a, it's got a, you know, it's, it's electric and it's, but I, can we get an electric with a, with a a stick shift? No, you can't. Well, I don't know. So all these things like, oh, I like this metallic blue. Why would I care about the blue? But I, I, you know, again, like I've just the same as you're just describing, like I fall victim to that. So I don't think that there's a, I think that's the power of it, right? Like, even if you see through it, you still find yourself succumbing to the logic, so I think that that's. I mean, the only thing I would say is like I don't have, I don't have money invested in any <laughs> things. Like you know, I don't have any, I don't have any. I've done any IPOs or anything. So I, so in that way, I'm. I mean, I think both this thing, the computer and the car, are pretty minor things. But so in that way, I don't have an investment in it, and I don't. I'm, I, I I I try never to think about trying to make money. I try to do whatever I can to keep my income low, but, uh, but in terms of like these little, little commodities, like the car and like the, like food, even like I, I'm like, where are we going to go out this weekend? Oh, we haven't tried that place. Let's, you know, so I think that those, in those ways, I find myself just as, just as, uh, uh, succumbing to it just as much as the garden variety person.
0: I love this line on page 33, where you really capture the letdown of every exciting acquisition that we make Uh, you say quote one thought that one was obtaining the impossible lost object but one ends up with just an ordinary empirical object that pales in comparison end quote so it's like at the end of the day it's just another car it's just another restaurant it's just another laptop um isn't that don't you think
1: that the, the, the 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 when you drive the car off the lot that you get that, that feeling is to me the most, it's the most concrete feeling. And like, or the moment when that new car smell disappears from the car, like all these kind of things, I
0: think. I mean, lots of things disappear. I feel like I, I know, you know, when I, when I got my new car last year, it, I can feel like I'm trying to hold on to the, the newness, the, the exciting feeling. Cause I know, you know, in a month, it's it's going to be another car and it's not that i don't enjoy it but i see what you're saying it's it's still it, it pales in comparison to what i imagine it would be when i was you know searching online and seeing what they have at different dealerships and do they have the silver one that i like um, what what i want to pick your brain a bit more about though is i feel like you're just, you're saying you're not just saying look this is this is a simple error in our thinking you know we think that the object is going to satisfy us and we don't you, i think you're going further again and saying we find the failure satisfying and i feel like my listeners might need to hear a bit more from you about like how is that so why why would we find that that lack satisfying what what is satisfying about it
1: Right. So here, here, here's my theory, if I can do it in like a quick 90 seconds or something. So it's that there aren't just objects that are desirable available to us, right? So it's only when we lose something, we sacrifice something, we give something up that something becomes desirable to us. And then it's only insofar as we sustain that something is lost that we can continue to find something enjoyable or satisfying or desirable to us. And that's because once we get it, we close that gap and there's no, and all of a sudden that space through in which we can desire something and find it enjoyable, find it satisfying, it disappears. And there's no, and, and all of a sudden we're just left with a bunch of regular objects. There's no, it's, it's only in that, in that, when there's some kind of, Loss or something is lacking that there's that an object gets increased in value. Like when things are gone, and I think this is if you th- if people think about this psychically, or think about it psychically, if they think about it a little bit, I think they'll they would see that 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 it, the things that we that are lost to us or are gone are they have an increased value, right? And so that's the that's the basic idea, and so that's why I think failure. It, it, that we desire or find satisfying, the failure because that sustains the thing being gone or out of reach. And if when that gap is eliminated, then all of a sudden that that space for satisfaction is gone too. And it's very and it's it can be stultifying, even be suffocating, right? Like all of a sudden, wait a minute, I'm I'm too close to this thing, and I know I I lose this ability to find it satisfying. I mean, if you think about how. If you've ever been apart from your, the person you're in love with, and then you, you know, you, then you're, you almost feel closer to them when you're apart from them. And then if they're like, if you're like during COVID, I think a lot of people felt this, you're with them all the time. And it's there's something almost like, I just, I love you, but can you just maybe go in the other room for a while and, or maybe move across town for a couple of days.
0: So that I can want you again.
1: So that I can, exactly. So that I can find you satisfying again. Right. And I think that, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, I think that's just the structure of our, of our psyche. And I think that that's the, that's, that's really at the basis of what I, of what I was, the basis of the critique of capitalism, that it doesn't, it doesn't allow for that, or it does allow for it, but it doesn't allow for it to be avowed. Right. It doesn't, it it makes us think like, oh no, we're going to, what I really want is to have the object. What I really want is to have a lot of things, but no, what I really want is to not have a lot of things, right? Like to to have a lot of things. Obviously, not to be have nothing, right? Like you have to survive and survive in relative comfort. But to the, but to the things I find really satisfying have to be absent from me. I think in at some in some way, not maybe totally absent, but in some way absent.
0: I, I guess because loss creates want, exactly, and that experience of wanting is its own satisfaction.
1: Right. I I think that's the only satisfaction, right? Like that's the only satisfaction. Like I don't, I think, you know, Freud makes this distinction between pleasure and then he only makes this distinction later when he talks about this thing called death drive, which would take too long to get into, but, but between let's just call pleasure and satisfaction. And for him, pleasure is with that very momentary time when we obtain something, right? We, and, and his idea was it's when we, we release we have a release of excitation that's pleasure but he said it's always momentary right whereas satisfaction i think can be sustained because it, it involves not having and so there's no there's not this like it's just momentary and no i think we can sustain satisfaction for a long time because it, it deals with absence rather than this momentary this this time of having which only is necessarily fleeting
0: I love what you say as well about how the desires of other people create or, or shape our own desires. I I was recently uh, booking a vacation, in fact, to, to a place that I, I've been to before, but it's been over 15 years. You know, and I, I, I had a pretty straightforward idea of the things that we would want to do and see. and And then I start reading online. Oh, but you know, you, if you want to go to this restaurant, you you got to book three months in advance. And if you want to go to that place, you want to book two months in advance. And I thought, well, before I read this, I didn't give a crap about going to this restaurant, but now I do because I see, oh, is that what everybody wants to do? I guess I want to do it now, honey, we got to, we got to go to this thing. Um, can, Can you explain that idea?
1: Yeah, I think you just, I mean, you just did a great job of it, right? Like, like the, the, it's only through, see through our interpretation of what we think the other desires that we start we get a sense of our own desire and i th- i don't think that's bad like i think i think most people would listen to what you just said and they'd say well that's bad you should follow what your own desire but my i would say there you don't have your own desire prior to some moment of interpreting what other people desire and that's that's totally fine i think that's totally fine it's just when it gets caught up in this Fantasy of like, oh, the other person has it all, and that's why I want to follow their desire, right? Then I think it's can become problematic because then you're you, it's tied to this thing that we've been talking about the whole time, like seeking fullness or or this completeness in an object, and you think, well, this other person already has that, and so that's why I want to follow their desire. But no, it can just be, look, that's this this thing's desirable to other people, so I'm gonna. I'm gonna find take an interest in that too. I don't see any problem with that whatsoever because I think that's how you find out what your desire is. You know, there's this great story about the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, and he saw his brother. His name was Paul, who was a great pianist, and in fact, he lost an arm in the First World War. And someone wrote a single uh, a a concerto for a single uh, uh, hand for it. For I forget who it was, it was Mike Vavre or somebody. and he saw his brother playing the piano, and he's like, he was so focused, and he's like, just totally committed. And Wittgenstein's like, you know, I want to feel that way about something in my life, just like so consumed by it that I can't think of anything else. And then he became that for everyone else. Like everyone thought, Ludwig Wittgenstein is this philosopher. All he thinks about is thought and logic and problems, and he just, he just. The rest of the world is just nothing to him. But he only started doing that because he saw his brother doing that with the piano. And so everyone's like, that's just how Wittgenstein is. He's a genius. He's so just consumed by... No, he got that idea. But it's great. I mean, it's great that he he thought about philosophy like that, right? But, but he only got it because he saw his brother and his brother probably saw some other pianist like that. And he started getting... Consu- so I don't think it's a bad thing. I think like that's how... It just obviously depend. Obviously, if it's like somebody consumed with heroin or something, then that's probably a bad thing. But in general, I think thought, like paying attention to the desire of the other is the way that we're not psychotic. So I think that that's it's 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 very good in that sense.
0: Yeah, it's how we figure out, I guess, our own desire. Um, you know, what what would you say is the is a solution to all, all of these traps or all of these? problems. You know, what do you say to people who are listening to this and resonating with everything that we're talking about, I mean, how might they approach their own consumption, their their own life in capitalism differently?
1: Yeah, I mean I think there's there's two there's two answers to that question. The first is I think that we need to collectively do something about the structure of capitalism, right? Like obviously it's, it's, it's very unlikely that we're going to totally leave capitalism behind. I'm not, a, I'm not a complete idealist, but I think there needs to be some kind of major shift in the, just the total inequality and all these things. And, 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 and maybe collectively getting beyond that fantasy attached to accumulation would be a major thing. But I think, you know, I've, I've had several people and they all start the email the same way. They're like, you know, you're probably going to hate this, but I, I really take your book, Capitalism and Desire, as a self-help book. And I, you know, I, and and I'm like, I don't hate it at all. I think it's great. And, 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 and and I kind of wrote it myself in that way. Like I, just because, just like I told you, like I, I find myself caught up in that same fantasy. And so I'm constantly struggling against it. If I like with this car thing, I'm like, well, maybe we should just stick with the old car, fix the rust. And it's kind of nicer, you know, because if someone hits you, you're like, no big deal. Like I was in this ca- kind of crappy car. Someone rear-ended me at a light, didn't damage the bumper a little bit. I, and they, they were like, oh, we should call the insurance. I'm so sorry. I'm like, you know what? Just forget it. Just let's just drive away. And they're like, are you kidding? Are you sure? And I'm like, no, it's fine. This car is already crappy. It's no no harm done. And And so- I, I felt such freedom in that moment, right? Like I was cause you know, all the things, even if it's not your fault, the insurance, you got to take it to the shop all. So there's a way in which like getting out of that, like having to have the great next commodity is freeing. And I think that's the, that's where I see the, the, the help of it, like the, the self-help dimension of it.
0: I, I kind of agree with what this person told you there. There's a, a self-help self-growth, uh, Dimension, I think, to to the experience of reading this book because everyone's going to relate to it. Everyone's going to read it and say, "Oh my god, I that's me." I I, I do that. I I know. Right.
1: Right. Right. Right.
0: Um. You know, we're we're almost out of time. uh, Before we we go, you want to tell us what you're working on now or what you're up to now?
1: Yeah, sure. So I I'm, I'm I'm just finishing a book on. It's called something like Embracing Alienation. So it's about how you could kind of see it connects to this book in a way. Like it's about how alienation is a good thing. We shouldn't think of alienation as a bad thing. We should think of it as a as a positive thing. And that's going to come out sometime. But I just I just published a book called uh, The Racist Fantasy, which is a critique of racism. And it's uh, it's the the way fantasy enables right underwrites racism and another book called enjoying right and left which is about the way enjoyment is structured politically in two different ways so those two things and i have a little podcast called why theory so where i talk about all these things with my co-host so
0: can you repeat the name of yeah the podcast? it's called
1: why theory why theory
0: and where can people find that
1: uh, that's a good question. I think it's on, uh, it's, it's, it has, it's on Apple podcast, but it's also on the one that everybody does. Uh, Spotify, maybe. Spotify. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Okay. We don't okay. get the money that Joe Rogan gets, but we, we, uh, we don't get anybody, but, uh, it's, uh, it's on there. Yeah.
0: And, and for people who are interested in keeping up with what you're doing and, and what you're publishing, do, do you have a website or do you have, social media where people can follow you? Yeah. See, this is part of
1: my critique of capitalism. I don't have any of these things, but I do do a little YouTube thing and I do the podcast and uh, the books are, you know, they can, people can email me and I, I, I have PDFs of the books I'd be happy to send to people if they don't want to buy them. So
0: do, uh, do you want to share your email address?
1: Yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's Todd.McGowan at edu. Sure. Great. Yeah.
0: Great. Well, yeah. Uh, Again, my guest today has been Todd McGowan. He is the author of the book, Capitalism and Desire, the Psychic Cost-Free Markets. Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate it.